Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabuke. This week, we talk about how the Yang Gang is moving forward, Haitian gangs are kidnapping missionaries, and the de facto gang that is the Chinese Communist Party is facing new headwinds. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll also check in on inflation in the U.S., and we'll try with admittedly mixed success not to talk about the infrastructure and reconciliation bills this week. Yeah, we fixed a lot. We failed at that. <laughs> All right, shall we? <laughs> Let's get into it. Arrow, good to see you. Good to see you too, Mike. Happy Tuesday evening. I feel like we haven't done this on a Tuesday evening uh, recently. We're back in the groove. Wait, does one data point mean that we're back already? Or yeah, when you know, it's it's less about the data and more about the feeling this time around. Okay, I'm I'm into that. I I feel like we're back. I mean, we took a few weeks off or a week off here and there, and then schedules got busy, and so we recorded during the day, which I, I have to say, high quality H2O is an imperfect substitute for, uh, you know, an actual alcoholic adult beverage. You know what, that, that I wouldn't blame the hour for that. That was a, that was a personal failing on my part. <laughs> you were like out of beer or something? No, I just like, didn't have time to run down and get it. And we needed to get the recording started. And, you know, I was kind of tired to begin with. And so I just went with it. Um, I didn't regret it at the time, but I think I think the takes are just a little less spicy, you know? Yeah. I feel like mine, wait, do you have like a pumpkin spice beer tonight or something? Is that why you use the word spicy? I don't, but that would have been a good transition. I know that you love pumpkin spice, Mike. (laughs) I still haven't seen my uh, apple cider donut flavored beer. So uh, we're waiting on it. Beer industry. I I was going to say, I think that needs to happen. Maybe that's like a news and brews offshoot. Yeah, we'll start. Uh, we'll start by getting some beer company to actually like sponsor us, and then uh, then we'll then we'll start shaping their beers. <laughs> I'm sure they'll turn to us. What are you drinking tonight? So I tonight I'm going with a classic, just a, a beloved classic, and that's the Bell's Two Hearted Ale. Oh, it's a good one. Really a game changer. You know, part I think I would say this beer is a big part of the reason uh, every brewery feels the need to make multiple IPAs. Mm. and it's got a fish on the label and it doesn't taste anything like fish. And I appreciate them for that. Yeah. I, I call that the fish beer whenever I see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's the association that they want. Not but... even, not even a note of fish in the taste. <laughs> Very little fish. So I went with a Gutenacht, which Ooh. is a solace uh, brewing company, which is a favorite here on news and brews in Sterling, Virginia. It's their Oktoberfest. Nice. I'm, um, I'm not familiar with that one. Solace does such good work though. They do good work. And this is like a really, I mean, I'm not like full on in the tent in in München right now, mm-hmm. but, but I'm definitely uh, enjoying this nice crisp lager on a nice crisp fall day here in DC. So I'll call it a win. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's been really kind of all over the place week. And so, it has. And, and I think, I feel like we're back in the groove, not just in the timing of our recording, but like in my own capacity for news consumption over the last week, you know, I was on, on vacation and I was traveling to, to do another speaking engagement and hadn't been as up on what's happening in the world as, as I normally would be. Um, you're kind of taking notes throughout the week, capturing the narratives we want to speak to on the pod. And so uh, I'm excited for this one. You know, one thing to to point out to listeners is that we are going to uh, be soliciting topic ideas. We'd love your input. We've really enjoyed the feedback uh, that we got this week after we asked for it last week. Please keep that coming. And um, we'd also like your thoughts on topic because there's no real like magic sauce how we pick these topics. It's sort of like we have a Slack channel and we're like, oh, this is interesting. That's interesting. And we kind of like both have veto power. But it's, it's highly not scientific like... and data-driven and most <laughs> people out there probably wouldn't understand. <laughs> Listeners, listen to me. Don't listen to mine. <laughs> All right. What do you think? Should we get into it? Let's get into it. Here's the first round. So we'll start with a kind of interesting political story in the U.S. So former presidential candidate, former CNN contributor, former New York City mayoral candidate, and ongoing blue hat fashion icon, Andrew Yang, announced earlier this month that he's leading the Democratic Party to form his own, dubbed the Forward Party. As I haven't, in, heard, haven't heard that name in a while. Yeah, not right, not left, but forward. Um, 
So the, the party is based on six principles, ranked choice voting in open primaries, grace and tolerance in politics, universal basic income, human-centered capitalism, meaning like uh, going beyond GDP and stock market levels as the metric for uh, economic well-being, um, you know, targeting things like deaths of despair, making sure prosperity is broad-based, things like that. Effective and modern government is number five, and then fact-based governance is number six. You forgot um, the seventh, Mike. Which is what? Which is, it's not red states, it's not blue states, it's United States. Well, that's that I think might be the, the Obama party, but uh, that, that one's taken. Um, practically, you know, as they talk about what their platform is, uh, the first area of focus is the democracy reform, you know, things like open primaries and ranked choice voting and independent redistricting and con congressional term limits. And, uh, and, and those are things really designed to make the political landscape more uh, ripe for third parties in general. Yeah, third, fourth, fifth parties. And the, the second big area that they're focusing on near term is tech savvy governing. So, you know, having a cabinet level department of technology, uh, defining data as a property right for individuals and, and things like that. I'll be honest with you. I don't hate it. I find it I mean, interesting. It, it sounds good. You know, if, if this were a multi-party democracy, I feel like this is like the Lib Dems in the UK made this like surprise run. Mm -hmm. a decade ago or something like that and like nobody saw it coming but like you can do that in the uk and w until there are things like ranked choice voting in the united states we're just not going to get there right um, which which i think makes that that makes their practical areas of focus make sense right the fact that they're yeah. going to go and, and really focus on these initiatives which which are happening across a number of states um, i don't yeah. think we're anywhere near nationwide yet at this point but even in the the new york city mayoral election you saw ranked choice voting I heard that election went really well. Well, I don't think that was the fault of ranked choice voting. I think that goes more to the uh, effective and modern government pillar of the party, which, which honestly, my frustration, I've got a personal story on this, but, but I think the big risk with someone who has been a Democrat saying that they're forming a third party is that they're basically just sort of repackaging or reframing or you know, yeah. slightly reprioritizing Democratic Party principles. I don't think we hear nearly enough about effective government uh, from Democratic Party leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, this goes to you know things that we see a lot overseas, right? With with corruption just being sort of a poison underlying so much of the misery we see across the world. Um, but even here, you know, things like the healthcare.gov rollout, things like the metro in DC, right? <laughs> Which uh, for for those who aren't local and listening is currently 60% uh, of the trains have been taken out of service because of a derailment. And this is on after a string of just uh, really uh, tough episodes for uh, for Metro and, and not being able to maintain service levels. And it felt like they were kind of just turning the corner. And then this, they, they, and this then the 737 max happened. Right. And, and so, so anyway, in terms of the platform, I think there's, there's a lot to be intrigued by there. So about 10 years ago, I was an early advisor and kind of thought partner to an organization that was started by a guy named Charlie Whelan, who was another unsuccessful Democratic candidate. Uh, he actually lost the race for Rahm Emanuel's congressional seat after he became Obama's chief of staff. And that organization is now called Unite America. And they advocate for a lot of the same things as, as Yang's new party, you know, open primaries, ranked choice voting, um, things that will make the, the environment generally more conducive to third parties. But at the time, I, I you know, had some conversations. I was out in, in San Francisco at the time, and there were some other sort of techie folks involved with it. Uh, and I bowed out pretty early from those conversations just because it was hard to see in that political moment where you had a uh, an extremely united Republican Party, uh, you know, going into Obama's second term, and uh, it, it was hard to see how any additional party in the mix could be anything but harmful to Democrats. And you know, as as someone who has been involved in Democratic Party politics for some time, I, I wasn't really interested in in having that impact. Was he was he talking about starting his own party? It started out as being a vision of a party. He wrote a book called The Centrist Manifesto um, and wanted to start it as a centrist party, which I think the concept of centrism as the foundation of a party has problems in its own right. You know, you don't want to just be the kind of split the difference between the other two party, which I don't yeah. think is what is what he had truly envisioned. But, but yeah, that, it's like, what do you stand for? Not what those guys stand for. Right, exactly, which is 
sort of cowardly and distasteful, but that's, that's not what his actual beliefs were. But I think we're just in a very different moment now. And with things like the Lincoln Project emerging, you know, during the Trump years, I think you have a lot of former Republicans or people who are sort of just hanging on to the Republican Party by a thread and are looking for something that is more, you know, more moderate than, than their, their options on the right right now. You know, maybe there are some uh, some in the Democratic Party who would feel the same way. I think more than anything, there are probably a lot of non-voters who um, it would be great to to bring more into the process. So I don't know. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an open mind about this one. I, I think uh, you know Andrew Yang was extremely successful in bringing the idea of a uni- universal basic income into the mainstream. I still think that idea has has room to grow. I think there you know needs some refining and and nuance uh, in in any sort of implementation and, and probably a lot of experimentation before it becomes uh, a thing across the country but but I, I think I think he has shown some ability to take ideas that are um, you know maybe people chuckle at when they hear them or uh, don't think are realistic and and make people think seriously about them and I think it would be a healthy thing for that to happen with the idea of a third party I'm really skeptical about third parties, not because I don't believe in multi-party democracies, but because of what you alluded to earlier, this sort of united one side divided the other. I agree with you that the Republican Party is is less united than it was before. However, they still are, I think, more united than than the Democratic Party. And I just have this fear of however imperfect the democratic party is the more you kind of siphon off votes like i i agree with you all these things make total sense and like maybe the moment is to try to do whatever you can to sort of push this into the policy platform which is of course what he campaigned for president on and i think mm-hmm. what he would have done if you know he would have tried to do if he were if he were president but in absence of that happening i'm not sure that I will also keep an open mind, Mike, but I, I'm not sure that like starting your own party after having failed at at least two elections before and not failed in things like, you know, marketing of ideas and of products. I mean, everybody loves good math hat, but I, but I just, I don't know. I, I feel like this is a pretty precarious time in U.S. politics, and I'm not sure the answer is a new party. Yeah, I think the biggest structural headwind and the biggest question I would have after sort of, you know, listening to some interviews that, that Yang has given and, and reading up on the party platform is what's your plan to actually enact change? You know, these structural reforms around open primaries and ranked choice voting, these are pretty long-term prospects. When Charlie Whelan was, was making this play 10 years ago, they had a really interesting legislative strategy, mm-hmm. which was to say, which the, you would have to have. Right. Which, which is that the Senate is on this sort of dime uh, at all times. And and you you even see now, you know, with Manchin and Cinema and in the case of the infra- infrastructure bill, the gang of 10 or whatever it was, um, that a small group of moderates from any party can essentially control the agenda of what happens in the Senate. Right. And, uh, and so their strategy was to say, let's, you know, start with a base of folks like Angus King and Susan Collins and, and, you know, people who may be interested in bucking their party or identifying as independent um, and try to expand from there and try to get candidates elected specifically to the United States Senate uh, who share their views and would be, you know, could act as that uh, sort of moderate caucus in the center. Uh, to to control the policy agenda. Um, I haven't heard Andrew Yang talk about anything like that or any other path to um, creating a viable presence in the legislature. But I think given the way the caucus system works in both houses of the legislature and the, the power that is given to the party in the majority, it's hard to see a really clear path, even if you're able to change some of the electoral structures to actually wielding that power in a policymaking role. All right. Well, call to action to the Yang gang. Last uh, episode, we promised that we would be focusing more on the economy. So let's, uh, let's talk about inflation for a little bit. Let's talk about inflation. 
Everyone's favorite topic. Everyone loves talking about inflation, <laughs> especially Fox News. So uh, the consumer price index for September was released last week, uh, and it came in at 5.4% uh, increase year on year. This is uh, as high as it had been in June and July, just as the economy was reopening and higher than it was in August. Uh, and the price increases are fairly broad-based. Energy, which uh, I think is worth talking about for just a minute, was, was up 24% year on year. But what they call core CPI, you know, excluding food and energy, which tend to be a little bit more volatile, was up 4%. And this is versus the Fed's target of 2%. Um, with energy specifically, um, I think when we recorded last week, this story had come out like an hour earlier. Um, and so we mentioned it just really quickly, but the Economist cover story from last week was about the energy crisis that we are seeing and that is really rearing its head in different ways uh, around the world, but is is present in almost every major market. You know, we, we talked a little bit last week about kind of the, uh, the catch-22 of needing to make investments in bridge fuels like natural gas, but, but those really requiring long-term infrastructure plays. I think what, what stood out to me as I really dug into the story was the implications that the energy crisis now has for COP26, which kicks mm. off in just a couple of weeks. This is the big climate summit in Glasgow. You know, you ideally, I think, would want leaders going into a summit like that with really clear, focused minds about the challenge at hand of climate change, which is a longer term challenge, but a really clear and present danger to the entire planet. And when we're in the middle of an energy crisis, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, so I think, you know, that the, the prospects for that summit were already facing headwinds. You'd already kind of seen expectations downplayed by a number of leaders in recent months. But being in the middle of an energy crisis and needing leaders coming in feeling like they need to get energy from wherever they can to, you know, keep their economies going and their people alive through the winter um, is also not a great place to start. Yeah, no, I all really interesting points. I, I have two quick things to add. One is that I was on a podcast earlier this week talking about something completely unrelated and somehow we got what on. What was the podcast? Uh, it was called The Truth of the Matter. Um, we'll, link it, we'll link it in the show notes. And the my fellow guest, uh, Marty Flax, started talking about uh, climate change and how, you know, when, and this is sort of semi-related to what you were saying, Mike, but I think it, it sparked my imagination here for a second. So she was basically saying, it's not just about, uh, she's a human rights expert. And so it's not just about like solar panels being made in Xinjiang being bad and like, let's not do that. You know, mm -hmm. slave labor should not make things that make our economy cleaner, right? Like slave labor is still bad, even if it's like contributing to the clean economy. But it's actually a lot of like the electricity grid that powers the plants that produce all of this clean energy tech in places like China mm. is fueled by coal mm -hmm. and other fossil fuels. And so it's like, when you look into the value chains, you know, we've got a long way to go. Uh, and so I think what you said about the energy crisis right now, kind of drawing attention to the global energy market itself, I think is right. And there's probably a need to sort of look further and further downstream. You know, it's not just about wind farms and solar farms. It's like, where are those things being produced and how are they being produced? So another aside or to, to continue our aside. Um, I have one no, more aside after your aside. Okay. With no apologies to the listener, because this is our show. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was, so, so we're not really going to touch on the, you know, the infrastructure and, and reconciliation bills this week. It continues to be kind of depressing, but I was talking with a friend who's in the solar industry recently and, and talking about how all climate prospects really come down to the reconciliation bill passing. And what he said was really interesting. He said in the infrastructure bill, it doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but there are actually really strong investments in clean power transmission, which has been a real weakness of our grid domestically uh, that are included even in the infrastructure bill that's bipartisan. Um, so you know, some, some uh, hope there uh, also related to the energy space. Okay. All right. I like hope. Yeah. Are you ready for my last aside? I'm ready. Did you see Greta Thunberg's speech? I did not. So yesterday, Greta Thunberg, you know, iconic 
climate change activist, Swedish uh, activist, got on stage and was like riling up the crowd. And then she totally rickrolled the entire audience. Really? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I shit you not. It's totally worth a listen. Cause she was like doing her normal thing and then like busts out into like, like she was gonna saying... give you up. Yeah, she was singing it and like <laughs> she was dancing. Yes, and dancing. And it was like amazing. That's and awesome. apparently Rick Astley was all about it. Um, so uh, <laughs> all's well that ends well. Tremendous. So what were we talking about? Inflation. Inflation. All to say, all this entire side was to say energy prices in the US are up 24% year over year. That is over a really low base during the pandemic when we all thought that, you know, if you remember oil was trading at negative dollars per barrel, like they would pay you I to do take remember a that. Oil. Yeah. It's not that anymore. It's, <laughs> it's like over that. 80. Yeah. It's not that. But the inflation we're seeing is quite uh, broad based. And as we know, if there is too much inflation, the balloon pops. <laughs> and not only at that point are the kids crying, but you've got toxic latex just everywhere. Everywhere. No, actually, I feel well, like you just described Saturday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we'll come back to Saturday afternoon and uh, and some <laughs> some kids in in our house uh, purposely peeing on the bed. Uh, but is that part of the inflation segment too? Where we're or? going, where we're going with the inflation is to the big question of is inflation transitory? Right. So this, you know, when we talked about this uh, back in May, that was the the key question. And there were some rosy projections at that point that really thought we would be seeing inflation back down to normal levels by now. That obviously is not happening. And in fact, we've had CPI now above 4% for six straight months, uh, above 5% for five of those six months. Transitory, um, you mean like it, it's here, but it's going to go away. Right. Meaning Fleeting. You know, it's, it's just going to take a few months for the supply chain to adjust for capacity to correct based on higher prices uh, to it. produce more goods, which then, you know, when you increase supply, the price comes down uh, and inflation goes away. And I think, you know, what, what we are seeing is a number of things, just, you know, one being that the supply chains are harder to unstick uh, than, than a lot of people had hoped. I mean, I think, frankly, we're seeing a lot of demand driving inflation right now as well. Like if you yeah. look at, there, there have been some stories about the ports uh, in the last week, uh, Biden announced that they are, will be running the port of Los Angeles 24-7 for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But if you look at the throughput of that port, you know, the containers that they are actually uh, taking in, it's it's higher than it has been at any point in the last several years. It's it's not a... a capacity supply it's a demand exactly. it's a demand issue um i also that, think the president listened to our episode last week which is why he's doing that you have to assume it was the news and you have to, bump, as it was the news do. and bruise bump yeah you know but i i think you're also starting to see expectations start to shift and that was the other really key question with the inflation story right was you may see a few months of higher inflation here or there you may even see an extended period uh, and and the Fed, for their part, has said from the beginning that you know we will be willing to tolerate inflation well over our two percent target for some time, but once it, once expectations start to shift, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy where people are demanding you know higher future price increases in contracts. Uh, you're seeing you know uh, labor contracts with with higher uh, raises baked in, and you are uh, it, it becomes self fulfilling. So consumers now expect inflation to be 4.2% over the next three years, which is higher than those expectations have been in, in our adult lives. B businesses expect 3.1%, which is the highest result that survey has ever shown. And you said the Fed is like 2% is good. Like some Two, inflation 2 is good. 2% is the Fed's, is the Fed's official policy target. Right okay. now, inflation has been below two percent for basically the entirety of the last ten years, and so they said back in like April, May, when we started to see some higher inflation numbers early start to come in, they said we will be willing to allow inflation to go above two percent for for some period that's longer than we otherwise would, in part to correct for you know these years of of shortfalls that we've experienced, uh, in part to allow the economy to just recover and get back on its feet after the pandemic. Yeah. So I don't know much about economics, but one thing I have learned about inflation is that this expectations game is actually really important. 
uh, as I was reading about and learning about the sort of ties between government spending and inflation, because this is sort of like, this is the, the consummate retort that you hear from people who don't want to do things like, you know, uh, vote for a $1 trillion or a $3.5 trillion spending bill is like, oh, it'll increase inflation. And, and I think the reality is, or what I learned at least, is that that may not be true unless people sort of assume that it is true. And it's like prices go up as much based on people's expectations mm -hmm. as they do on some sort of like macroeconomic juju that's going on in the background. Like that's not actually what's, what's happening as much as it is this expectation game. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, generally the, the take that I have is like, you know, we talked about data points at the, at the outset of this show and like, look more than three data points, a trend doth make. Right. And, and so I think we are seeing higher levels of inflation right now. I think the question is why? And the answer is yes. Hmm. It's like all of the above. Yeah. Um, it's this increased demand. It's, uh, you know, a decrease in supply, the supply chain issues that you talked about. It's like the, the whole basket of goods, quote unquote, is, is really uh, affected by all of these changes. So yep. yes, is the answer. One thing that inflation does when it is present is, is counteract or essentially erase gains in income, right? So wages now have risen by 4.6% in the last year, which on its face is great. But since prices have risen by 5.4%, that means the average worker actually has less spending power despite a nominal increase in pay. Which leads us to our next story in the first round. Yeah. Labor strikes. Um, and so as, as we've seen, anybody who's paying attention to the news is seeing that, you know, unions and workers across the country are going on strike. 10,000 John Deere workers, nurses in Oregon, people who work on Hollywood movie sets and people who produce cereal for Kellogg's in Omaha, Nebraska, you name it, they're, they're striking right now. And it's, it's related to this inflation conversation, Mike, because I'm sort of hard pressed to think about a time at least in my lifetime, that workers have more power than they do now. Not power in terms of like the strength of unions, right? Like unions, there have been concerted efforts to uh, defang unions over the last several decades and they've existed and they've maintained some power. And I have complicated feelings on some unions, but I think generally speaking, they are um, responsible for the 40 hour a week you know, work week and all sorts of overtime pay and all sorts of other things that are that we now are, assume are normal in the United States of America. And I think they're very, very important for representing, you know, workers needs and, and workers are needing more things right now. And it's not just the um, sort of wages have increased by 4.6 per seven, but prices have risen by more percentage. That's you know, they need more money in their pocket, but it's mm -hmm. actually, it's actually much bigger than that. So look, after a year and a half sitting in our basements, like Americans are ready to buy shit. Like, I mean, there's a reason Jeff Bezos is going to space. Like it's Amazon, it's local businesses, like people demand is up across the board, not just lumber in the Northwest demand for everything is up and somebody's got to make the stuff and move the stuff and deliver the stuff mm -hmm. that the demand is demanding. And, and it's, it's more demand for goods than we've seen because people are still yeah. reluctant to travel, still reluctant to go out to shows right. or concerts, still That's reluctant right. to consume services. And so you've got more spending on goods, which, which only exacerbates this, this strength. Excellent point. Excellent point. Which is why at the port of Los Angeles, you have not capacity issues, you have demand issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyways, then I think there's this element of, you know, lingering uh, effects of Me Too and the push for greater greater racial equity. I think all that sort of is, is actively redefining what is quote unquote appropriate in the workplace. And I think in a very productive way. And so people are essentially saying, no, I'm not willing 
to work under these conditions and I'm willing to strike. I'm willing to walk off the job for better working conditions. So that's kind of racial discrimination, gender discrimination, but it's also things like, you know, safety. And as we saw, most of the people who are sort of working people in this country were on the front lines of the COVID crisis, healthcare workers, delivery drivers, frontline food service workers. Like those are the people who were, you know, not just keeping the economy running, but keeping us all kind of alive. And they're being asked to do way more under way more difficult circumstances for basically the same pay or like some sort of like token increases. And so like McDonald's can give healthcare workers breakfast sandwiches and get a lot of good PR out of that. But if they're not paying their employees a living wage, or at least giving them breakfast sandwiches too, like then people are just getting fed up. And, and that's sort of, a, I think, a big part of what's going on now. And too. I think to, to reinforce that point, in August, we saw something like 3% of the workforce leave their jobs voluntarily. Yeah. Um, so a few months back, we talked about uh, Betsy Stevenson's take on this, which was the, the take this job and shove it stage of the recovery. Yep. And part of what we're seeing may just be an extended period of that. I mean, it is useful in all these conversations to remember that you know, when we talk about an extended period, we're talking about really the last six months of, of you know, even the economy starting to reopen. But, but it may not be a long-term trend yet that we're thinking, right? This, these could still be just reshuffling transitory phenomena that, that may take nine or 12 months instead of three to five months. And, and there's not like a normal to anchor ourselves in here. Yeah, no, there's there's new normals that are going to be different based on regions and cities and, you know, income levels. And COVID, as we've talked about this before, Mike, like COVID is not just a health crisis, it's an economic crisis. And it's really kind of like taken the whole economy and kind of like shook it up and the pieces haven't like settled yet. And so we don't know what that's going to look like and where workers are going to fall. And, and so in the meantime, people are fed up, you know? People are like, look, I'm not going to put my life on the line for this like $11 an hour job that doesn't offer health insurance. And like, you know, I'm home caring for a sick parent due to COVID uh, that I probably gave them. And, you know, it's just like people are just fed up. What's interesting is you have all of this talk in the media and and elsewhere, usually in right-wing media, but even sometimes in, in mainstream or left-wing media, you, you hear about worker shortages a lot. And this is all related to this, right? And so, you know, the, the figure that you gave of people walking off the job, the strikes that we're seeing now is like, there are actual solutions to this. We can just pay people more and we can give them safer work environments. I'm making it sound simple because kind of it is right. Mm -hmm. And so like, I I was trying to think about the arguments against what I just said. And so like, usually the arguments are some variation of like, we can't afford it as in like companies will shutter or like they can't, you know, make payroll or whatever. And that businesses will lay people off. Well, on that latter point, like, it's obviously not true because like businesses are desperate for people right now. And seeing um, record corporate profits. And so the second one is like, we, you know, the former point that I made was like, we can't afford it. And like, also not true because record corporate profits, wage inequality has skyrocketed in the last 30 years, 30, 40 years. And I, I was reading something earlier, Mike, that like, we're essentially approaching the levels of wage inequality that we had in the lead up to the great depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something's got to give. And I think that that like upper end of the inequality spectrum, like trickling down some of that to provide better working conditions and, and more wages is probably the right solution. And it doesn't strike me as all that hard. Yeah. And, and I think the, the other argument you hear uh, against higher pay is that it will spark inflation. You know, that you'll, you'll see a wage price spiral. Um, I think that is not what we're seeing drive inflation now. It doesn't no. mean it theoretically couldn't, but I, I think that there is um, sort of a negative multiplier on uh, wage, not, not negative, but a, a multiplier some, somewhere well below one, right? <laughs> on, on, on the influence of wage increases on inflation. Um, you know, yeah. If you remember... 
uh, years ago, uh, Papa John saying, you know, if I, if I paid all my people a living wage, we'd have to increase the price by, of every pizza by 10 cents. Um, <laughs> like that sort of impact, I think is something that we can, we can handle. Um, and college freshman Errol is like, no, <laughs> don't do that. The, uh, and everybody else is like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And, and I do think, I think that's part of the story, right. Is, uh, that businesses are not yet willing to pay more and pay as much as they need to attract workers. I also think that's not the whole story because you're seeing a lot of that happen, right? You're seeing Amazon starting, warehouse worker is at $20, $21 an hour with a signing bonus uh, in, in markets that historically haven't seen anywhere near that. I think there's actually another piece to this, and this is entirely like Mike's pet theory, but the way hiring happens is really reflective of a lot of the supply chain elements you know, that, that we've seen that are that became highly optimized, became just in time, became more mm. and more automated. And that extends to hiring as well, where you have these systems, these kind of matching algorithm-based hiring marketplaces, where the, the system is tuned to only show the employer the absolute most relevant resumes as something to seriously consider. And when you have a situation like we Which have Which happened now, to be white guys, right? Well, happened to algorithms. be people with, with highly relevant experience, happened to be uh, often younger people, there's, there's actually a lot of age discrimination baked into a lot of those algorithms. Mm. And when you have a situation like we do now, where there's been a major reshuffling of the labor market and you three, see 3% of the workforce leaving their jobs and starting to look for something else in the course of a month, that doesn't work anymore. Those, those systems will break down and you'll have a lot of people looking for changes right? Maybe they are looking for to, to enter a new industry or a new type of work. Maybe they had been in a job for 30 years and decided to leave it during the pandemic because they reassessed what was really important to them and they're looking for something totally different. And the systems that are in place to facilitate hiring don't really allow for that level of flexibility. And so you have a lot of people who are throwing their resume out everywhere they can and can't get calls back because the system isn't, uh, isn't built for this moment. i I think that's Mike's pet theory has a little bit of oomph behind it. There, there's certainly an economics paper that needs to be written somewhere in there. But yeah, we've got calls to action for the beer industry and for the economics profession. So, and and I was going to say, speaking of broken economics, uh, let's move on to broken countries. Yes, inflation's um, been way too pleasant to talk about. We've talked about Haiti what seems like an inordinate amount for such a small country um, here on News and Brews over the past several months. And for good reason, right? Like their president was assassinated. There were some bad hurricanes that hit. There were some Haitian migrants on the border mm -hmm. that were treated badly. And it just, Haiti's been in, in the news. And, and yet again, Haiti was in the news this week, this time because a gang right outside of Port-au-Prince kidnapped 17 foreigners uh, 16 Americans and a Canadian. Among those were five kids, uh, one of whom was an eight-month-old, wow. all affiliated uh, with the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries um, sort of missionary charity. It just came out today, Tuesday, that the gang is now demanding a million dollars per person, presumably including for the eight-month-old. You know, th this is sort of where the story is right now. And there's a couple of takes that I have. I don't know if you've been following this, Mike, but the reason that this is in the news, especially in the United States, is because there are Americans involved. Some of that is understandable, right? Like that's not a total indictment. Like obviously news is selfish. It's like when Americans are involved in American news media, like when Haitians are involved in a big way in America, it makes big Haitian news, like I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, that having been said, like buried in the coverage is the fact that this is like one of over 620 similar incidents that have happened in the first nine months of 2021, according to a Haitian think tank. Wow. And we, we had talked like in passing on a previous episode about how gang rule was was sort of taking over in parts of the country and this power vacuum left after the assassination of the president, the, the yeah. hurricane. Uh, I think there was an earthquake like the same weekend as the hurricane, if I'm remembering right. It's but really we, accelerated since July. And, and we, and we really didn't 
you know, th- that, that statement, that passing comment gang rule doesn't really say anything about the human toll that that takes or uh, what, what that means for somebody trying to live their life in one of these villages or towns. Yeah. So what's happened is, and this is not only happening in Haiti, unfortunately, it's like when governance fails, when there is no system of formal governance that people trust, um, you have these kind of like criminal elements that come and provide governance services, essentially. So Mm -hmm. this gang, I don't know too much about this gang, and I don't really want to even say their name on our podcast, but like, they don't need any more notoriety than they're getting. But like, I'm sure that they are like controlling kind of like mafia style. Like you think about like Soprano style, like they're sort of providing these services, quote unquote, of like protection and loans. And, you know, they're sort of filling a lot of the voids in society and economy and and governance that, that exist in, in these places. And so this is, you know, this town outside of Port-au-Prince, the capital of, of Haiti, where essentially this gang is like the government, they're the judge and the jury, and, and they're just doing what they, what they need. And their, their primary source of income is, it appears to be robbery and kidnapping Hmm. because there are, I mean, there's obviously a disproportionate amount of poor people compared to other countries in the, in the region in Haiti, but there's, there is a middle class and there are folks that, you know, wear uh, nice clothes on public transportation and, you know, have bags and other things that sort of signal middle-class status. You know, they sort of have some money, but they don't have enough money to have bodyguards and, and protection. And so what's happened is these 628 incidents of, of kidnapping that have happened since the beginning of, year, of the year are predominantly those folks hmm. who are, you know, sort of get kidnapped and don't have that much in their bank account, but they could sell off an asset or they could borrow money from friends or something like that and pay it off. And this is like a serious source of income for these gangs. And the longer that they are allowed to kind of, you know, govern and, and, you know, be effective in these areas, the longer, uh, the longer actual people, like you said, are going to suffer. Yeah. And, and, Having having lived in so many different countries and and you know post conflict areas especially, have you seen anything like this up close? Yeah, so I used to have kidnapping insurance. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny thing because um, a lot of times you don't know you have kidnapping insurance until you actually need it, and the reason is like the last thing you want is a person who looks like me traipsing through a place like Port-au-Prince knowing and talking about the fact that I have kidnap insurance. Wearing your, I have kidnapping insurance sandwich board. <laughs> right. And so it's sort of like the, you know, the flight fight club rules, um, you know, don't, don't talk about insurance. So wait, but so you had kidnapping insurance and you didn't know it. I didn't know it at the beginning. Uh, who, yeah. When I lived, who got it for you, the organization that I was working for. And where were you living um, at the time? Iraq. Wow. Um, which it wasn't as big of a thing in Iraq. There were other dangers in Iraq. Kidnapping was one of them, but it was sort of lower down on the list, you know, to IEDs and, and other things. Do you know but, how much the insurance was for? Like how much were you worth? I don't know how much it was worth, but I mean, it's this sort of a million dollars per person makes sense. I mean, it, if anything, it doesn't sound like a, a lot of money. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that in public, but it's, I don't know if this particular, you know, missionary organization had insurance. I'm guessing that they probably didn't if they're not a big sort of, I was with an international like humanitarian organization, but to your question, like I, I have been in places like there's, if you think about, uh, there are places in Nigeria that are particularly where the oil companies are in the, mm-hmm. in the so- southern portions of, of Nigeria, where it's huge business to kidnap oil workers and hold them for ransom. And there's like whole systems that are basically set up for this. Somalia has whole systems that are set up for this. And so when you live in those places as someone like me, a lot of times you go through training, like I've been through, like, what do you do? if you get kidnapped kind of training. Really? Um, yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> it, it plays to my strengths. Cause it's like, 
endear yourself very quickly to your kidnappers <laughs> is like the number one rule. And it's like, I can endear myself to people. Like I got hope my wife like to nerds. marry me. <laughs> I hope they like <laughs> nerds. I can mispronounce something in your language. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think, unfortunately, this is a business model that is, um, that is alive and well and thriving in lots of areas. So it's, you know, people may see this happening in Haiti and be like, oh, this is like a unique thing. And it's, and sadly it's not, but it's, it's really a signal of the just absolute fragility. I mean, we basically almost yeah. have Afghanistan on our doorstep at this point. Do you have a sense, and maybe we're going beyond uh, sort of what you experienced, but like when something like this happens, is this something that the state department's dealing with? Is this something that the charity itself is really on the hook for figuring out like what, what happens? Yeah. So the state department and you, you saw secretary Tony Blinken was in Colombia today, I think, um, or maybe somewhere in South America today and was sort of talking about this. And certainly the state department has a very key role primarily because the U S embassy there is the closest thing that the U S government has to eyes and ears on the ground. So they're absolutely involved. In this case, uh, the FBI is also involved. The FBI doesn't always fly across the world to get involved with these things, but since it was Haiti, I think there was within hours of the the news breaking of the kidnappings, there were there were FBI folks on a plane down to Port-au-Prince. And why is that? Uh, probably to handle the negotiations. Huh. The you know, these are probably like FBI hostage negotiator types. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, it's such a delicate thing because you don't want to talk about ransom and basically, um, so if you have ransom insurance, if you talk about it, you run the risk of nulling the insurance totally. Uh, like while you, I do not have ransom insurance right now. And so like, I'm not going to null and void any ransom insurance that I have now, but if you talk about it for the reasons that we talked about before, it goes away. And, and because there's this moral hazard involved, not by the person who has it necessarily, but just like, you know, you don't want to say there were the same gang um, kidnapped a, a priest and, and a nun and some other people back in April uh, in, in Haiti. And news came out that the ransoms were paid and it's like, well, I, I agree that let's do anything to get people out, but like there is a moral hazard. It accelerates, like, it accelerates the business model. It, it clarifies the incentive for this organization to keep doing it. I don't have a better answer, but like so that's you're saying, the reality I, of what's happening. If I'm wearing a sandwich board, it should say, I do not have kidnapping insurance. I think that's probably wise. Yeah. So my, my sandwich board is raising a lot of questions that were already answered by my sandwich board. I think you should have a sandwich board that has something on the front and on the back. And I think it should be worn on October 31st. Okay. We'll, we'll look at it. We'll look okay. into it. Great. So that's what's going on in Haiti. That's really tough. And, and so we'll, you know, obviously keep uh, those individuals in our thoughts and, and, you know, hope for things to, to take a turn in Haiti because it has been a really tough string of several months for them. Yeah. What, one quick note on that is, and, and I agree, uh, we will be thinking about them and hoping that they come home safely to their families. One kind of small silver lining for the health of people is that it is usually not in kidnappers best interest to harm people that mm -hmm. they kidnap. That brings the wrath of like the U S military down on you versus like the FBI hostage negotiating team. Mm. Um, that's just like a different level. Like these are, these are pretty smart people. I'm assuming that like kind of understand that there's like a line that you cross and a line you don't cross. And they have crossed a very significant line in kidnapping foreigners. Mm -hmm. And so it remains to be seen what happens with that, but like to, to go even further to harm them, one can only hope that they're smart enough not to do that. Yeah. I mean, presumably there's like a bunch of special forces teams that have been deployed to the Middle East for several years who are sort of looking for rescue situations to get into. All over the world.
Last uh, last note for the first round. As I said, we're not going to get into detail on the uh, the reconciliation and infrastructure negotiations. I do think it came out right around when we started recording this episode that uh, Biden is now telling lawmakers to anchor themselves in a 1.9 trillion number instead of a 3.5 trillion number for the reconciliation bill. So, um, you know, silver lining there. Uh, hopefully, this is the last we've heard of 3.5 trillion repeated <laughs> as nauseam. Um, but I did want to recommend to listeners uh, another podcast, which is Al Franken's podcast. And this week he had Austin Goolsby on, who was the chair of uh, Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, um, and is is just generally a really smart, well-spoken, uh, entertaining person to listen to, as is Al Franken. Uh, and the interview was just exceptional, really got to sort of the fundamentals of how budgeting and, uh, and accounting works for the government and how to think about some of these spending numbers and what it means. And, um, and anyway, it, it sparked a lot of thinking for me that, um, we can get into on a, a future episode, but, uh, if, if anyone's looking for a good listen, uh, the Al Franken interview of Austin Goolsby is excellent. We'll link it in the show notes. And also you're a huge nerd. <laughs> <laughs> we get into our main story. Let's do it. All right, we're going to talk today about China's economy. Uh, so we have had enough of lot. this United States economy. Let's talk right. about China. Right. We, we've had a lot to say on this show about China's policymaking, uh, particularly their attitude toward the Uyghur Muslims and uh, toward LGBT citizens and, and other groups. But China's growth, economic growth, has been really exceptional for like the last 30 years. Um, there was an article I was looking at in the BBC that estimated they've lifted 745 million people out of poverty since yeah. the early 90s, like two times the US population. Yep. And the trend in their growth was about 10% annually from the early 90s up until about 2010. For the last decade, it's been about 7% annual growth. Still high. Um, still high. That slowed, started slowing in 2019 to 5.9%. And then in 2020, it was 2.3%. Now, keep in mind, 2020, the global economy shrank by 4.9% amid the pandemic. So that's an aberration. Uh, but that means the question is now, what does the Chinese economic story look like going forward? And we got a glimpse of that this week when they reported just 4.9% annual growth in Q3, uh, which was well below expectations. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's, there's a lot going on here. So, you know, part of it is similar stories to what we're hearing elsewhere, right? They're facing supply chain challenges, uh, just like everyone else. They've had localized shutdowns for COVID outbreaks. Their particular policy approach when they see an outbreak has been to really go in and do a, a hard lockdown locally, which has meant that, you know, here and there, a lot of major factories and major uh, factory communities have to shut down. And so the, the long and short of that is that industrial production was forecast to grow at 4.5% in the last quarter, but actually came in at just 3.1%. Part of the story is the energy shortage. And we've talked about that particularly in America and Europe, but it's actually worse in China than either of those uh, other places. So they've had massive power outages, yeah. which I didn't realize until I heard like in some article just mentioned in passing, like, oh yeah, these repeated power outages in China. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of that has been driven by flooding in the Shanxi province, which is where most of their coal is produced. And coal prices in China are up 60% this year. Wow. And like we, we talk about energy prices in the US going up 24%, but from a really low base, that's not the case with coal in China. It went down like less than 10% uh, in the pandemic and is now up 60% this year. Wow. So, you know, when we hear China announce that they are shifting away from coal domestically and across the Belt and Road, that's not entirely altruistic. You also have- It never is with China. When things are couched by Chinese official sources in altruistic terms, there might be a modicum of altruism, but underlying are almost always kind of selfish economic reasons. Not to say that that is inherently- bad i'm not gonna like engage in it than anyone else or, frankly, or different than anyone else but like the realist school of news and bruce right i mean there was there was some i you know excuse the tangent here but like you said mike it's our show like china made some announcement that they're providing like a couple million dollars in humanitarian aid to afghanistan and it was like this big splash announcement that they tried to make and it was like really really there's so much more that is underlying that. I mean, thank mm -hmm. you, but also there's 
you know, there's so much more going on there. So everyone should, should take those announcements with a grain of salt. Economic aid devoted entirely to security on the Chinese border. Yes. <laughs> Errol steps gingerly off soapbox. <laughs> so so the, the other big factor here is you also have Xi Jinping trying to make some fundamental changes to the economy with ends that aren't totally clear. I think where his vision on things like corruption and on you know what it means to be Chinese culturally have been very clear over the years. Um, his economic vision isn't entirely clear right now. And there's, there's some raised eyebrows, I think, among kind of analysts and, and economists. Most notably, he's come out with statements saying that real estate should be for living, not for investing. And that marks a major shift away from high levels of speculation and development in China's rise to date. Uh, and and is, is, frankly, putting some uh, brakes on their growth. As I was thinking about this week's main topic and, and kind of China's economy, I, I was thinking about real estate. I'm subscribed to the Quartz uh, daily um, email newsletter, and they've, mm-hmm. they've really been covering this Evergrande or you know, Evergrande story, <laughs> if you want to pronounce it, as if you were in Southern China. This story... Uh, the sort of largest property owner in China has really been the news primarily because they have not been able to pay their bills to their creditors. And it's sort of the one company that grabs the headlines. But if you peel that onion a little bit back, there's so much more going on there. A lot of which Mm -hmm. you talked about, Mike, but a lot of which sounded really familiar to me. So, So stop me if you've heard this one before. Okay. An aging population with people getting married later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Houses continue to get built at a rate they were when everything was booming decades before, even though because of the population decline and people getting married later, there are few, fewer people to occupy those houses. Okay. The result of which, of course, is too much housing, too little demand, mm-hmm. and not enough people moving to the places where housing is oversupplied. Mm-hmm. Okay. You following? With you. Okay. On top of this, and this is where it gets really eerie, you have a housing market that is highly speculative and driven by an underlying assumption that the industry is too important for the government to let it fail. Hmm. Uh, You have a housing market that is not only highly speculative, it's a housing market that is fueled by debt, some of which is unproductive or bad debt. I'm not going to you know, connect the dots for people, but, uh, but Adam McKay can do that for us, but Adam McKay can, you know, very oh, visually this, do that for th- us. This was another movie reference to the big short specifically. I missed it. I just, <laughs> I assumed it was like somebody important. So I just repeated you. Cause that's what I do. I support you, Mike. And you're like pop culture. I'm uh, glad knowledge. you learned to just, just go with it. When I, I just roll with it, man. Um, I have an American accent, so I just roll with it. Uh, so essentially what you have is like the, the result of this is like population basically for, for a decade, the housing market has just been sort of growing and growing and the bubble has been you know, this sort of latex balloon has been growing in size and uh, housing sales were down 8% in July, wah, wah, 16% in August, double wah, wah, and 33% in September. So that's like hmm. liberal, literally a doubling. Yeah, down. I'm just mentally plotting this. That's, that's not the direction you want things to go. That's like really not the direction that you want to go unless you want to end up with you know, the sort of Saturday afternoon, um, kids crying, balloon popping, latex everywhere situation that we talked mm-hmm. about before. You know, I, I, I don't know that I have a great grasp of like what it means if this Chinese growth hits a real halt, you know, or if, if they really do have an economic crisis in China, you know, is that something that would potentially spill across the world economy in the way that the the US financial crisis did in 2008? I think undoubtedly it would have an effect. I mean, all of these sort of supply chain inflation issues that we talked about in the US, uh, I mean, some people talk about economic decoupling between the Chinese 
China and the U.S. And I, it's just we're so coupled yeah. that decoupling is is really really hard. Or you know, our economies are so interdependent. Well, you, you don't you don't have the same um, global financial infrastructure residing in China, right? That's potentially true. I think your question was, will it have an effect? And I think the answer is yes. Will it have such a an effect as like the U.S. Epicenter financial crisis of twenty, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Potentially not. I think one thing that it does for for China is, you know, Xi Jinping. You you talked about, you know, where is he going with this? And and his he's going with like making China great again and harking back to like kind of the times when when Chinese culture was the most sophisticated in the world and Chinese science and Chinese economy was the best in the world and. And that's kind of where he wants to go. And he said as much in the party conferences. And so if there is a slowdown, if the housing bubble pops and there are kind of, you know, knock on effects throughout the rest of the economy uh, and China is seen as being a drag on the world economy. And the, the reason that China's influence has grown is because they can just, you know, toss around cash um, mm-hmm. wherever they want. And I mean, I'm vastly oversimplifying something that's very complicated, but that's, uh, you know, one of the reasons why their influence has grown is because they can sort of pay to play. And if that, for whatever reason, lessens, then I think countries around the world that have, you know, in recent history partnered with China might start looking elsewhere. Again, these are sort of like looking way down the road. Uh, but I think that's probably one of the things that Xi Jinping is worried about. It's not just sort of like the domestic economics, you know, we got to get uh, heat and electricity to people. I'm sure he's worried about that because they worry about domestic dissent, but he's also worried about like the impacts of this on China's global image. You know, you've got the Olympics coming up in Beijing. Right. Um, right. And it's like a really bad time for China's economy to be tanking. Yeah. Well, there, there's also some expectation that uh, Xi and, and the Chinese government will be cracking down more on some of their largest industries as well. Uh, we talked about their energy shortages. In the US, the industrial sector uh, consumes about 25% of our energy, uh, our electricity across the US. In China, it's like 60% the industrial sector. And so when wow. they start to hit a shortage of energy, uh, that's the place to look. And so they're basically looking at industries uh, that are a lot of their core, you know, core to their economy that are uh, high energy consumption uh, and high carbon emissions to uh, to potentially put the brakes on. But but that then you know is just a further drag on growth, and and you know when they when they no longer have that room to spare, it could be really dangerous. Uh, so it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. What do you think from a foreign policy perspective? You know, having problems economic problems domestically can make behavior on the international stage much less predictable, I think. Potentially. I mean, I think that they have been remarkably predictable in recent memory in terms of their kind of muscular approach to to foreign policy on the one hand, and then this policy of non-intervention in countries like They'll invest in wherever they don't care who the government is, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I don't see what we talked about here unless it like unless there's a true economic crisis, which I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I think the signs are bad domestically in China, but I don't think that there is a true economic crisis. And if there was, I think it's more just like more attention will be focused inward to try to solve whatever it is. And and perhaps that leads to less interest overseas. But honestly, I don't really see this as something that particularly will deeply affect China's foreign policy. When Putin felt threatened domestically, he invaded Crimea. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I, I don't think Xi Jinping is is Putin in that way. I mean, I don't think they're going to invade a uh, neighboring country, they could what use it as an opportunity. That country to, is part of their country. I mean, maybe. 
I, I think what's more likely to happen is they're just going to further crack down and on their citizens. Speci- specifically for listeners, uh, China has also been stepping up uh, military exercises in uh, Taiwan or, or near Taiwanese airspace. The U.S. and Britain, maybe the U.S. and someone, I think, just just sent some ships through the Taiwan Strait. So the the block is hot uh, over there right now. I think that's right. I mean, I I think that how much of that is related to the domestic economic troubles and a sort of yeah i I don't think that's causal but i do think that a deepening economic crisis makes it more volatile maybe i mean i think that xi jinping is unlike other world leaders and i mean i I don't think he's above it I, i don't think he's above causing a war to distract from domestic troubles which is essentially what you're saying Putin did in Crimea, and there's countless examples of, of this from elsewhere. Uh, I don't think he's above it, but I'm I'm not sure that that is going to be the main calculus. I think the main calculus is going to be, is there some sort of geopolitical opportunity to exert more influence over Taiwan, a la what they did in Hong Kong? I think the last thing China wants is like a kinetic war. Well, but they, they said they, to do what they did in Hong Kong, they need to invade Taiwan. They they can't exert that level of control on right. the current status quo, and and I think that that worries them. But I I also think, you know, sending a, a few jets over into their airspace is one thing, like full scale invasion that that risks the wrath of not just the UK and the US, but really the entire world is mm-hmm. uh, is quite another thing. And I call me rose colored glasses, but I don't see that happening. You heard it here. News and brews bump hopefully means that we don't go to war. <laughs> I like I like the news and brews bump for peace. Let's keep that going for yeah, sure. Yeah, news and brews bump for peace. I like that. All right. I think I think then Harold, it's safe to say we fixed it. We fixed a lot this week. It's good to see you, Mike. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. News and brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabake. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, October 19th, 2021 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.